If you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 7. We've, um, we've just finished working our way through the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus, uh, Jesus really didn't mince words in, in that sermon in, in Luke chapter 6. And, and if you're like me, you found that it was, well, let's just say it was, it was tough to hear some of the things that Jesus taught in that sermon. And then, of course, to measure them against our own, our own hearts. He, he showed us what the righteous life looks like he, he showed us um he showed us what the heart that has been changed by god looks like and so just to, just to review a few things he said we saw that that the heart for god is is one that recognizes its sin and, and it mourns over that sin remember he said blessed are you who mourn you'll be comforted uh jesus told us who we're supposed to be we are to be uh, people who love our enemies and and love th- those who are well, let's just say unlovely. Uh, we are not to condemn others, but we are to examine our own sin before we can see clearly to remove the speck that's in our brother's eye. Um, and it, it's by the fruit of our lives that we are that we're known. It is by the fruit that we produce that we can see clearly what is truly in our heart. And we saw all that in Luke chapter six. And if you're if you're honest, you know that when you when you look deep into the recesses of your heart. Um, you don't see you don't see righteousness you don't you don't see goodness just like Paul in Romans chapter 7 you can say in me that is in my flesh there there dwells nothing good so really the only thing we can do is trust in the only one who is good all we can do is is build our life on the rock is what he told us at the end of Luke chapter 6 by by following and doing the words uh, of Jesus we we are the branches and he is the vine he tells us in John chapter 15 Uh, we can do nothing unless we abide in him he told us now if you are if you're even remotely honest with your with your own heart you know that those are some pretty hard sayings uh those are not easy we hear the words of jesus and we understand what god expects of his people uh, but when we look at our own hearts and lives we are man we're failing woefully falling woefully short of the mark we 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 don't excuse our sin. I mean, you can't say that. Well, we're just all failing. We all fall so, fall short. So you know, we're just doing the best we can. It's not that big a deal. Um, we don't. We can't do that. Jesus said, "The blessed heart is the one that mourns over its sin." Uh, that's the heart that'll be comforted. So we don't just give up and say, "Well, since I can't be perfect, I'm not even going to try." You know, what's the, what's the big old what's the big deal? Um, the Holy Spirit living inside us will not. He won't allow that. God God always disciplines his children so we are utterly sinful and wretched but we are called to be righteous now what does that look like in someone's heart I I know we have looked at the reality of it in the sayings of Jesus in in Luke chapter 6 but you know I'm I'm kind of a a visual person give me a picture of what it looks like give me an example Um, that's what we're going to see today in the beginning of Luke chapter 7 Luke is going to um, He's going to give us a picture of the of the heart that Christ accepts. Uh, it, it's probably in the last place you'd ever think to find it. It's going to be in a Roman centurion. Uh, Jesus has come here, you know, as the Savior of of Israel. We know that he has come to the children of Abraham, the children of God, and he has come preaching and teaching about the fulfillment of righteousness that he brings. He's come to ransom them from sin and death, and to say that the Romans were, well, 
hated by Israel is is probably the understatement of the century. They were the Romans were seen as I mean they were seen as an occupying army and with good reason. I mean that's exactly what they were. Um, they were in a lot of cases ruthless and they controlled the land of Israel with with the force of their might. They they forced Israel to pay taxes to Caesar, which really was adding insult to injury in the mind of the Israelites but but here we are going to see the heart of the heart of faith the heart of humility that God accepts it's not found in an Israelite in Romans or Romans in uh, Luke chapter 7 but it's found in a Roman so let's look at the context what's going on Verse 1 and 2 of of Luke chapter 7, it says, After he had finished all these sayings, that's the sayings that we heard in Luke chapter 6, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. Now, just to give you a little heads up as we begin, a centurion, of course, you probably know this already, is a it's a Roman officer with charge over a you know a cohort or company of soldiers, you know, and, and although they are called centurions, which you know century denotes a hundred, it was usually around eighty soldiers in a in a Roman century. Um, so these Roman officers now they weren't cupcakes they 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 were tough they were capable they had a reputation for being uh, for being hard and demanding um, but it's interesting to me that whenever you see a, a centurion presented in the New Testament he's always presented in a in a good light we got this centurion here you got the centurion at the crucifixion that said truly this is the son of God so what we see here is is really something extremely unusual. Uh, this Roman has a servant that is highly valued. The first thing we note about about this centurion is that, I mean, just off the bat, he seems to be a compassionate person. I mean, remember that this is a time when slaves, they don't really get good treatment. They're more like cattle, uh, especially Roman slaves. A Roman centurion stationed in Palestine probably wouldn't, characteristically have expended too much energy trying to get a sick slave some aid um you know but he sends to jesus to help this slave to help this servant and because of that i mean i might be taking a leap in logic here but you can probably assume that he'd already had you know some of his doctors or or roman people look at him and they were unable to help so this guy demonstrates i mean really some compassion right off the bat but the point of this section is not just to say oh look at this roman he's so compassionate i think luke wants us to see the heart of this centurion as it pertains to jesus now he's going to show us a clear difference luke is between the heart of the centurion and the heart of the elders of the jews that come to jesus we're going to see that here in a second we've um you know we we've been given all these convicting characteristics of the heart that's right with god in luke chapter 6 in the sermon of jesus and and here we're going to see really the two ends of the spectrum when thinking about being right with god let's look at what happens in verse 3 It says, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and to heal 
his servant. Okay, so so Jesus has been going around the countryside healing, casting out demons. Uh, when we looked at the Sermon on the Plain in the last chapter, we saw that that uh, before Jesus started preaching, it says the people came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. So this centurion has he's got a sick servant. He uh, he hears about Jesus, this miracle worker that's healing. He hears that by the power of God, Jesus is delivering those who are taken with illness, unclean spirits. Um, it, it's not really entirely clear how much he actually knew about Jesus's mission or, or you know who he is as the Son of God. But but even Jesus is going to tell us in this section that the Roman has a greater faith than all those in Israel. But but I want you to pay careful attention. To what the text actually says. The centurion sent the elders of the Jews to ask Jesus to heal his servant. Now, probably since Jesus was a Jew himself, the centurion thought, you know, he'd not be be open to coming to help him because he was a Roman and they didn't have a great rapport with the Jews normally. This particular Roman will, but normally they didn't. So he sends these elders of the Jews who we're going to find out here in a minute. They really like this centurion, and they send him to ask Jesus to help. And and it's interesting to me that uh, this is just a little side note for you that in Matthew's gospel, the elders of the Jews aren't mentioned in this uh, this parallel story at all. It's just the centurion that comes to Jesus. And and just for your information, we'll call this a parenthesis. Uh, this is important to you to understand that it's not a contradiction in the gospel, um, like so many other. Uh, uh, people call them discrepancies or contradictions. It, really, it's just Matthew telescoping the account. I mean, we do it all the time. The messengers who are, um, in this case, the elders of the Jews, are are, are coming on behalf of the centurion. Uh, and so it would be like me sending a message to you through a neighborhood, you know, saying... You know, I don't know, whatever. Your dog has gotten out of the pen. You know, if someone asked you how you found out that your dog was out, I mean, it wouldn't be untrue to tell them I informed you, even though I actually sent a neighbor to you. So there's a little, just a little useful information to you about what we call the synoptic problem in the Gospels. Uh, we can talk a lot more about that, but the point of this text is to show the kind of heart that God accepts. Now, I want you to check this out. The elders of the Jews come to Jesus with a message. They are, they're supposed to simply ask Jesus if he would come and heal the servant of the centurion. That's what the centurion asked. He, he sent the elders of the Jews asking that Jesus would come and heal his servant. But listen to what they add. Listen to the commentary that they add to what the centurion asks. Look at what they say in verse 4. It says, And when they came to Jesus, these are the elders of the Jews, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, He, talking about the centurion, is worthy to have you do this for him. Why is he worthy? Because he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now, make sure you hear what they're saying. They are they're demonstrating the kind of religious heart that Jesus has been talking about in in the previous sermon. Remember he said, "Woe to those who are happy and satisfied." And we saw all that from Luke chapter 6. Uh, that's the heart that's satisfied with itself, with its good works. It's satisfied with its own goodness. The that heart is it's not mourning because of its sin. It thinks it's doing, you know, it thinks that by doing good works, it's making itself acceptable to God. Notice what the elders say about the centurion. He is worthy for you to go and do this for him. 
And then they base his worthiness for Jesus to work in his life on the fact that he's good to the Jews and that he actually built the synagogue there in Capernaum. So the elders of the Jews are making sure that Jesus knows that that this is no ordinary Roman. This is no ordinary centurion. This is this Roman is not like the others. He has done incredible deeds for the Jewish people. He's a lover of Israel. And, you know, I, I presume from this that he's, you know, he's kind to them. He's taken to their ways. Uh, in the Gospels, we'll run into a lot of Gentiles who who actually worship the true God. Uh, the Bible calls them God-fearers. Uh, they're the people who are they're not Jewish by nationality, but they worship the true God and they follow the practices uh, of Judaism. And so, this Roman seems like he is, he's one of them. So when the elders come to Jesus, they use a word here that we need to, we need to remember. The word is worthy. They tell Jesus that this centurion is worthy for Jesus to come to him, for Jesus to go to him. He's worthy for Jesus to do this for him. Now think about that for a moment. Think about what they're saying. The, the elders are basically saying that because this Roman loves the Jews and he's financed the building of the synagogue, that he has earned the right for Jesus to do something for him. He's worthy means, in a sense, Jesus, you know, you owe it to this man to go and heal his servant because he's done all this good for us. He's, he's worthy of it. Now, take just a second and think about the heart and the worldview of these elders that would lead them to believe that a man, any man, can put Christ in his debt by doing good deeds. When, when I put it like that, we, we know the gospel and, and, and you know the scripture, it bristles against the thought. I mean, when you think of, of being worthy of Christ to do something for you, or you think of putting Christ in your debt in some kind of way, we, we know that's not the gospel. We know that no matter what we do or how good we act or how good we think, we're not, we can't earn our righteousness before God. He doesn't owe us anything. Uh, we, we, know that, we know that that's true. But even as believers, we have a tendency to fall back into the mindset of thinking that, that our goodness earns us something. That thinking that it's just ingrained in us because of our flesh. Whenever, for instance, whenever we do something good, I mean, something really good, like, you know, whatever, uh, going witnessing for Christ or helping our brother in need or, you know, j- just whatever it may be, things that the Bible uh, praises as as what we need to be doing. There's a tendency for us to think that God, you know, because we've what, we've done this, that God loves us more now. God is... is uh, more proud is more proud and prouder of us than he was before or or something like that uh, and in the same way if we you know if you go out today and you completely blow it and do something stupid or sinful it's easy for us to think that we've lost something of our standing with the father but that is not the gospel we are who we are in the Father's sight because of who Jesus Christ is and what He has done. If you've been born again by the Spirit of God, the Father sees you as perfect in Jesus Christ. Um, Whether we've hit it out of the park today or whether we've messed it all up, our identity is found in Christ. We're covered in His righteousness, not because of our works, really in spite of them. Now, 
Of course, that doesn't mean that believers are, you know, free to go and sin all they want. We've already seen that in the last chapter. The evidence of your salvation is that we are living for Christ and that we, that when we do sin, we have the conviction chastisement of God. We saw that the tree is known by its fruit in the previous section. Uh, you know, he's just gotten finished saying that uh, the ones who do his words are the ones who have built their, built their house on the rock. Um, but that's not what these elders of the Jews are thinking. For them, the, the centurion is worthy to come into the presence of Jesus. He's worthy to have Jesus do something for him because of what he's done. And, and from this, and really the Bible's general picture of the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees and, and all of them, we see, you see the religious worldview that really is the real problem. Jesus doesn't have any problem uh, reaching out to the lost. He doesn't have any issue healing the broken, rescuing the sinner, uh, coming to the outcast, helping the leper. But it's the self-righteous religious people that Jesus calls a brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs. The, they come to Jesus and they say, this man is, this man is worthy. They are thinking uh, by implication, you know, if you ask me just my opinion, my thoughts, by implication, they would see themselves as elders of the Jews. They would see themselves as worthy. Uh, but make no mistake, there is none that, that is worthy. Romans 3 tells us that there is there's no one. There's no one who does good. I mean, that's a, that's a blanket general statement. There is no one who does good. And just in case you say, well, that's probably not talking about me. He, Paul even tacks on in Romans 3, not even one. There is no one who does good. He says there is no one who seeks after God. Not, not a one. So even though they're thinking and their hearts are not right, even though they're assuming that the centurion is worthy to have Jesus do something for him because of his works, it's amazing to me that Jesus condescends to go with them. I mean, the, the text just says, and Jesus went with them. Uh, and it's as they're going on the way to the centurion's house that something amazing happens. Somehow, this centurion finds out what the elders of the Jews told Jesus. In verse 6 and 7, let me read them together. It says, And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Let me stop there for just a second. This centurion stops them on the way to his house and notice what he says. He specifically says, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now, this centurion doesn't have, he's, he doesn't have the same heart that these elders do. I mean, they said, oh yeah, he's worthy because of what, he, what he's done and all the good that he's done, but he, he totally rejects all the good that he has done. He, he claims that he is not worthy. He knows that despite all his love for the Jews, all his good works, all the money that he put in the synagogue or, or however it got built, he's earned nothing. He also knew that that he also knew what it would mean for Jesus to enter into his house. There's a little backstory here. If a Jew enters into the house of, of a Gentile, he becomes unclean and he must go through the prescribed purification rituals. And, and, you know, after a certain amount of time, he would be declared clean and allowed to go back into the synagogue. And so if Jesus as a rabbi were to enter into the centurion's home, he would make himself unclean in the eyes of the Jews. And so the centurion knew this. And he sent, 
He sent friends to stop Jesus from coming. But it's not just that. Remember, remember that the elders of the Jews said that this centurion is worthy of Jesus doing something for him. He's worthy that Jesus would heal his servant. But the centurion doesn't just deny that he's worthy for Jesus to do this. He humbles himself even more. He says that he's not just unworthy for Jesus to do the miracle for him. He's unworthy to even come into the presence of Jesus. He says that he's unworthy for Jesus to come into his house. He's unworthy for Jesus to lower himself and become unclean just to help this centurion. I, I don't know of a better picture of the incarnation than that. I mean, think about it. Jesus chose to lower himself and take on flesh, become a man to redeem mankind from sin and death. One of my favorite sections of scripture, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8 says, or 6 through 9 says uh, that he was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. That's Philippians chapter 2. What Jesus did, Jesus, it says that he went with them, knowing that the centurion wasn't worthy, knowing that if he stepped into the centurion's house, he would make himself unclean. But it, he didn't say a word. He went with them. He, he was lowering himself to bring deliverance for another. That's the very picture of what Jesus did. Jesus, the, the second person of the Trinity, humbled himself. He took the form of a man. He lowered himself and became part of the creation itself so that he could step into our mess and redeem us from it. That's what Jesus chose to do. Because we're, I mean, let's be honest, we're, we're, we're so often spoiled by the goodness of God and the blessings that he rains down. We, we sometimes think that Jesus owes us, you know, because of the good that we've done. If you're like me, you've heard these words come out of your mouth. God, how could you let this happen to me? I've been faithful. I go to church all the time. I'm always doing good for you. How could you let this happen to me? Now, you may not have ever, ever let that cross your lips, but, but there's something inside of us that still thinks that way. But in, in reality, the bare fact of the matter is that Jesus owes us absolutely nothing. He came to save us and reconcile us back to God, and all that is by God's grace alone. Nothing we have done merits it in any way, and if that is all Jesus ever did for you, and if you continually do good things, you still do not put Jesus in your debt. Every blessing that we enjoy, which, I mean, it includes life and breath, the enjoyment, the pleasures of this life, sunsets and time with your family, all of those things are a gift from God because he's loving and kind. That's why he gives it. He doesn't owe anything. He doesn't owe us anything at all. He owes us actually condemnation and wrath, but he has given us salvation and redemption instead. This, this centurion knew that Jesus didn't owe him anything. In fact, he took great pains to make sure he stopped Jesus on the way to his house. It says when he was almost at his house, I mean, he could have, if he was like most of us, he would have said, well, I mean, I wish it wouldn't have happened, but dang, he's almost here. Might as well let him come on. No, no. He took great pains to stop him 
on the way there to tell him that he wasn't worthy to be in his presence. This this centurion demonstrated a heart that it, his heart understands its sin, understands its unworthiness. <clears throat> he he humbled himself. And this is the heart that God accepts. Just like the story of uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector who went into the synagogue to pray, the Pharisee saw his own goodness and he said, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. You know, I pray and I fast and I do all these things. And there's a tax collector there who who understood his low estate, understood his sin and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus tells us that it's the tax collector who was the only one that was accepted. He alone, the tax collector, went to his home justified. So this centurion refused to allow even the elders, even these others, to characterize him as worthy. He's not even worthy to come into Jesus' presence, uh, much less claim that he's worthy for Jesus to actually do something for him. But that's not the end. The centurion demonstrated more than just a humble heart which is part of the heart that God accepts. He demonstrated more than just understanding his own sin and his own unworthiness. He demonstrated a faith in Jesus that the elders of the Jews hadn't demonstrated. Now, remember, the elders of the Jews simply said, uh, you know, come to this centurion's house and help him. You know, uh, but look at the faith in Jesus that the Roman exhibit exhibits. Let me let me just read it and we'll talk about it. It says verse seven and eight says <clears throat> I'm gonna read seven again just to put it with verse eight. It says, Therefore, this is the centurion talking, I did not presume to come to you. He says, But say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it. So this, this Roman didn't just say, you know, hey, I'm not worthy for you to come and be in my presence. Uh, he understood and believed that Jesus has the authority over the sickness of his servant. This is what Jesus has been showing us in throughout Luke and all the miracles and healings that he's been doing. Uh, he isn't healing folks just to be healing folks. Uh, if that were so, then, I mean, everyone would have gotten healed. He is He's healing and casting out demons. And we've already seen this in Luke's gospel. He's, he's doing this showing that he has the authority over the fallen world, over the fallen creation. He has the authority to bring in the kingdom of God. Uh, the kingdom of God where there's no there's no more death there's no more sickness he's showing the inbreaking of the kingdom of God he's showing that he has the authority to bring creation back from the curse of the fall which brought in sickness and evil and all these things this centurion although you know he may not have understood all that was at work he believed that Jesus had the same authority over sickness that the centurion himself had over his men. Uh, you know, as a Roman officer, you know, it doesn't take much brain power for us to recognize this. Uh, he doesn't have to go into the presence of each one of his soldiers and speak to them in order to mobilize them or, uh, you know, to get them ready. He doesn't have to go to each one of the soldiers in his century or uh, to, to command his troops. He just sends word. He says, move through his subordinates, through his officers, and the men under his authority move. And believe me, if you're a Roman soldier, when your commanding officer gave you an order, brother, you followed it or you died. It was as simple as that. So the centurion 
is demonstrating a faith that even the people who have been following Jesus and listening to him preach haven't shown. Uh, You get the sense of this faith when you remember the Old Testament passage about Naaman. Remember Naaman and Elisha? Uh, uh, Naaman was was a commander in the Syrian army. He was well-respected, capable man. It goes, it talks talks him up that he is a he is a, a very prestigious man, but he was also a man with leprosy, and he came to Elisha to be healed. You know, there's a story that goes with it. He sent word through the king of Israel, and and he, his, the king of Israel sent him to the man of God in, in Israel, Elisha, and uh, uh, Elijah sent word through his servant, you know, telling Naaman, you need to go dip yourself in the Jordan seven times and you'll be healed. Now, Elijah didn't even go out to meet him. He just sent word to him. Now, you remember the response from Naaman? He was mad. I mean, he was ticked off that Elisha didn't come out to him. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what he was supposed to do. Wave his hand over him or you know, whatever, do his thing. Uh, he felt like he'd been disrespected, Naaman, this prestigious man. This is not what the Roman did. He believed that Jesus not only had the authority, but could wield that authority just simply by speaking. He wasn't so, he was truly humbled. He wasn't pretentious and thinking, well, I'm a Roman centurion and I've done all these good things. The least Jesus could do is come into my presence and do his little, do his thing so he can heal my servant. This is not the heart that the the centurion demonstrated. He, He just said, speak the word. And it'll be done. The elements of, you know, fallen creation, sickness, and all those things, they were like the centurion soldiers. When Jesus said move, the centurion believed that they had to move. So verses 9 and 10 tell us the end of this passage. It says, And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Jesus, um, he recognized the humility and the faith of this Roman. He says this Gentile, this God-fearer, who most of the Jews would probably have slighted just because of who he is or you know the, the uncleanness they would have contracted from coming into his house. This Roman's demonstrating more faith in Jesus than all of Israel. He has the kind of heart that Jesus has been describing in the Sermon on the Plain that we saw in Luke chapter 6. He understands his sin. He understands his unworthiness. He doesn't doesn't presume that Jesus owes him anything, but he asks for his servant to be healed simply because Jesus is the only one who can do it. He is asking, this Roman is asking as a beggar, would ask. He's not bargaining with God. He's not bargaining with Jesus. He's not banking on the good works that he's done. In his mind, he has nothing to bargain with. He has no capital to deal with. He is worthy of nothing. And yet he believes that Jesus has the authority to help him. He trusts that Jesus is who he says he is and that simply by speaking the word, the fallen creation has to bend sickness has to leave. He's he's demonstrating a heart of humble faith, and his faith is in the right place. It's in the right person, the person of Jesus. When, when they went home, it says they found the servant was healed. Jesus spoke the word, and it was so. So, after all the things that we've heard in Jesus' sermon, the hard sayings in chapter 6, you might have thought, man, how in the world can anybody accomplish that? 
How can anybody be good enough? If God expects us to love enemies and pray for those who persecute us, and if he expects us to bear fruit and examine ourselves before we condemn others, I mean, who is like that? Who can be like that? The point here is demonstrated for us. The heart that Jesus accepts is the heart that is humble, the heart that recognizes its sin, but it's also the heart that trusts in Jesus's righteousness, that trusts in Jesus's authority. It is a heart that refuses to see any worth in our works or or anything that we're able to do. It's a heart that, that has absolutely nothing but trust in the person and work of Jesus. So often, well, to, to be honest, we, we use language like accepting Jesus. We ask people, you know, won't you accept Jesus as your Lord today? And to be honest, I, I understand the meaning behind that. I mean, I understand what we're saying when we say that. And I, I use that language myself sometimes. But a better, more accurate way to express it would be to say, Jesus doesn't really need you to accept him. He's King of Kings and Lord of Lords, whether you accept him or not, whether you believe it or not, you will you will understand that truth one day. Whether you do it in this life or you recognize it in the next, Jesus doesn't need us to accept him, but we desperately need him to accept us. We need to cry out for him to accept us. We we don't do this with hearts holding on to good things, thinking how good we've done. Wow, I'm, I've done all these things. I go to church every Sunday. I read my Bible. I help others. So therefore, I'm a child of God. We don't expect that God is in our debt or owes us anything for what we've done. We've come to Him. We come to Him understanding who we are. We're nothing more than rebel sinners and have no righteousness of our own. And we place all our trust in Jesus, that he is enough. He's enough to pay for our sin. He's enough to present us holy and blameless before the Father. And if you think about it, if you think about it, everything that you've done, and I'm talking about the really good things. I'm not talking about things that you think are good, that are not really. I'm talking about the things that are uh, commanded and required of you. Even if you do them all, even if you do them all, you have not put God in your debt. You have done what was expected of you. I tell this, uh, I show this picture all the time. If I, you know, if I get a job, and uh, my boss says, you know, hey, I'm going to pay you three hundred dollars a week, uh, and, and I say, well, I tell you what, if you'll make it three fifty a week, I promise to be on time every day for work. I haven't given. I mean, that's not even a bargaining chip. That's something I owe already. So if you were the boss, I mean, you would look at me like I'm insane. You would say. <laughs> Uh, no, part of your job is to be on time. You're not really offering me anything that uh, that I need. You're not offering me something extra. That's part of what you're supposed to do. So even if we do all that is expected of us, we have simply done what we are commanded to do. We are, We have simply given our reasonable service. The problem is that you and I know in our heart of hearts that we haven't done everything that we're supposed to do. We haven't given him the love that he deserves. We haven't worshipped him as he deserves. We don't love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And because that is the case, anything that we do that is good, anything that we do, it is not only not enough to secure anything before God, 
but it doesn't bring God in our debt at all. We need a Savior. You and I need Him to accept us. We need Him to accept us and to bring us into His family, to redeem us from the curse of the law, the sin and death that has captured us. And the heart that Jesus accepts is a heart that recognizes its sin, that mourns over its sin, that realizes its low estate as this centurion did, and it trusts in the power of the Savior, trusts in His death and His burial and His resurrection to redeem us and to make us right with God. Today, before before your head hits the pillow tonight and you close your eyes to go to sleep, call out to God. Call out to that Christ would save you. Trust in Him. And He said that if you call upon the name of the Lord, He would save you.